So I want to say a couple of things before I start the talk. I want to first welcome Kate Wheeler, who is sitting up and joining us for the rest of the retreat. We're very happy to have her. She's taught this retreat with us many times, and uh, she's been teaching for some years, teaches in Boston. She's also a writer, and as you may know her by her pen name. And um, yeah, just delighted to have her joining the teaching team. So I'm sure you'll be joining me in welcoming her, old friend of both Sharon and ours. And um, in case anybody missed um, the Q&A today, uh, you may notice that Gina has left us. Uh, she, her sister, um, is very ill, and so she's gone to be with her down in Florida, and will probably be gone for the rest of the retreat. So we'll um, be holding her in our hearts and in our metta, and uh, wishing her and her family the the easiest time in this difficult time. So, so <clears throat> here we are at the end of day one, 24 hours. We regard it as a complete success that you've all stayed here. You may be surprised that you've stayed here. Day one is uh, notorious for not being the easiest of days. No matter, as I mentioned earlier today, no matter how much positive intention and excitement we had about coming here, uh, and our high expectations get usually very quickly dashed by the reality of what it takes to be here and to be present, what it takes to show up and be mindful, what it takes just to simply be with two breaths or one breath or half a breath. And I know for when I've done retreats and probably true for many of you today that the doubting mind often appears very loud on the first day. What am I doing here? Why did I sign up for this? Why didn't I sign up for that vacation in Hawaii? Or the, the two doubts that I remember from previous retreats that I get a little chuckle over. One was a woman said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> Which I thought was a sad state of affairs, but anyhow. Another woman who, when I was teaching out in California, she said, you know, I could be sipping wine at a spa in Napa Valley, and I came to do this. <laughs> so I want to bow to you for being here and staying in your courage and the term determination here. As I said, it's, this practice is simple but not easy. So the talk this evening, I want to talk about, um, mostly about the practice of metta, loving-kindness, but also a little about mindfulness and how these two practices uh, work together, and a few nuts and bolts about the practice, although uh, tomorrow morning, Sharon will give a more comprehensive uh, instruction about the details of the practice. I'm giving more of an overview this evening. So, um, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist path, is really a very comprehensive view, comprehensive understanding of this journey from suffering and pain and confusion and ignorance that we find ourselves in to one of greater understanding, peace, clarity, freedom, self-knowledge, understanding, and also opening the heart to these beautiful qualities of love and compassion. And so these, these two qualities, these, these qualities of awareness and clarity, mindfulness, and the qualities of the heart of love and compassion are often talked about as two wings of a bird, that we need both of these uh, qualities in balance and developed to, to live a fully awake and uh, human life. The meta practice liberates the heart from contraction, from uh, self-centeredness, from fear, from the way that we pull back from the world. And mindfulness creates a certain clarity and insight and wisdom. And we need both of these in our journey, this long journey of 
awakening. So I like to uh, to see the the understand the, how these practices and how these uh, qualities of mindfulness and loving kindness really are two facets of the jewel in, in our hearts. The mindfulness actually to 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 cultivate loving kindness, to cultivate the practice and quality, we need a certain degree of presence, a certain degree of attention and awareness. And that to, to have a more, more complete quality of attention also requires a certain quality of kindness, a way that we receive the moment, it's a soft, receptive awareness. The Zen six, the six Zen patriarch one said, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. So if you think about a moment of mindfulness, maybe you had one or two today, um, think about what, what comprised that quality, that, uh, the, the, what comprised that moment, what features in the mind were there, because they're very similar in some ways to a moment of metta, at least they have some similar aspects. So in a moment of mindfulness, there's attention. There's a certain openness, a certain receptivity to the moment, non-controlling, non-judging, non-interfering, allowing, certain curiosity, certain attentiveness, interest, and a lot of those qualities are also present in the heart of kindness, where we also equally, uh, in, in the heart that's loving, is non-interfering, non-judging, embracing, receptive, open, curious. Joanna Macy, who's a Buddhist teacher and writer and scholar, wrote once, Actually, this is an, from an interview. Uh, she said, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not something often said about Buddhism. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. Anything you put your attention on and it reveals itself to you, the heart opens. So maybe you found that today or previous times in your practice when we're really fully present to something, to our breath, to a child, to a leaf, to the ray of sunlight coming through the trees, there's a way that it affects our being, affects the heart. They're not separate. So when we, when we slow down and can see the world with this more subtle, more attuned, more receptive uh, way, um, we have more the eyes of a poet a little more uh, keen observation. The poet Mary Oliver puts it this way. She says, there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. And if there is, I haven't found it yet. There's nothing in this world, if I pay attention to long enough, that doesn't foster or cease to foster wonder and love. So as we, as we go through the days here, I invite you to, to pay attention to this quality, to see how even in the most ordinary things, we can, our heart can open, become touched by. This is from the novelist Henry Miller, who took up painting later in life and wrote, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I'd gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, and to live again, and to see again. So often in our lives, whether it's because we're busy or jaded or we're just not paying attention that much, 
we, we don't really see very fully, we don't see very completely. And so here we have this you know, relative luxury of a week to be here, to do nothing else but simply be present and over the days cultivate these qualities of kindness and connection. And perhaps you'll notice from time to time that your ordinary little teacup or your fork or the shape of your pillow or the particular line of a tree will catch your attention and you'll find there'll be a responsiveness, a a sense of uh, affection. Or you're sitting across from somebody at the dining table and they happen to look sad or you can sense they're going through a difficult time and we feel that connection, that resonance, that feeling touched. So we look to, in, our, in, in Dharma practice here, we, um, we're, we're inviting, we're welcoming, as I mentioned yesterday, the fullness of our experience. And often that also includes, involves being receptive to the more difficult aspects of our experience. You know, we're living in these times where there's a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty, a lot of um, crisis economically and socially. And, and I'm sure many of you are coming here with a sense of burden from that, sense of anxiety or dis-ease or concern. And so we, I, again, inviting you to hold that as part of your, uh, part of your practice here that the, these practices of mindfulness and metta are extending their, their ways to hold and understand and learn how to be with those difficult circumstances and support us with some greater sense of uh, resource and ease. So and today is probably a good example to see how easy it is to um, uh, be faced with the challenge of being human. You know, maybe just the, the challenge of being awake. You know, half of you probably were feeling very sleepy and tired and dull and struggling just to follow a breath. Or maybe you were feeling incredibly agitated or restless because of the stillness and the slowness and the complete lack of activity and stimulation here. So how do you hold that? How do you be with that? What's your response to that? Do you uh, judge yourself and get down on yourself and get irritated? Do you, get, do you blame us and think it's, you know, why we create such a boring schedule? Why isn't there anything juicy in any singing and chanting and dancing? And, you know, why haven't we done a better job in entertaining you? <laughs> so how do you hold yourselves? Your ho- how do you hold your experience? When, when it's difficult here. Or, you know, being here is a metaphor for life because what happens here is no different than what happens anywhere else. It's just a little more of a microcosm and it's a little more exaggerated because there's nothing else to distract you. So the sound of your, your neighbor's breath you know, can drive you up the wall because there's nothing else to focus on. You know? or someone coughing too loudly can be the source of intense rage. You, know, you want to kill somebody because they're walking too loudly in the walking room how do you hold that? How do you do? Is, is there a sense of shame or fear or judgment? Do you judge yourself? Do you feel bad? These are all wonderful ways to, to opportunities to see. Oh, can I be present to this? Can I hold this with some kindness, with some forgiveness, with some acceptance? And these are very simple, very basic things that we might go, oh, that's, you know, that's just one-on-one stuff. That's, you know, and I, I, came, I came here for the really juicy, esoteric, blissful stuff. But no, it's, it, 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 you know, the practice is how do we meet this moment and every moment? And as you'll see, when we can meet these moments with presence, with, with awareness, with the spirit of kindness, our suffering eases. Our well-being increases. Our sense of equanimity and and unshakability grows. Our happiness grows.
This is from the poet Rilke, who has written some beautiful things about how to invite, how to open to these more difficult aspects of our experiences. He says, you have had many and great sadnesses, but please consider whether these great sadnesses have not gone right to the center of yourself, whether much in you has not altered, whether you have not somewhere at some point of your being undergone a change while you were sad. And sad, I think, is going to be a metaphor for a lot of different painful emotions. For our sadnesses are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown. Our feelings grow mute in the perplexity. Everything in us withdraws. A stillness comes, and the new, which no one knows, stands in the midst of it and is silent. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. So, (coughs) the way I understand that is we have to really allow these things in. <clears throat> so quick, we're so quick to reject and push away and avoid and distract. <clears throat> and yet these things can transform us if we allow them. I think it was a retreat last year here, or at Spirit Rock, Meta Retreat. A woman came and she had just lost her son. <clears throat> teenage son, um, only very recently, very, very few days prior to the retreat. And she came with a, with a, with a um, what would be a natural sense of, she felt like her life wasn't worth living with the, with the grief that was so intense and so, and so strong. And after the meta practice, after the waves of doing uh, a lot of meta for herself, she, really f- she, could, she was able to find that sense of strength and resourcefulness to continue. I remember a retreat I did here many years ago that was um, uh, not the blissful retreat I had signed up for. Um, It was a retreat from hell that we we all sign up for every now and then. Um, And uh, a lot of difficult, difficult, painful states came uh, for for way longer than I wanted them to. Um, And but I felt really lucky that I'd been practicing uh, this loving kindness practice and mindfulness for many years, and I was able to draw on that. It was able to really carry me through it. I was able to see that, you know, we practice um, these 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 practices so they can really support us when we're really going through it, whether it's a time of death or great suffering, illness. And I found that they were a resource. I could sort of, um, I was they they sort of came forth quite naturally. That I was able to hold that painfulness with a lot of kindness. And I don't think that would have happened naturally if I hadn't done these practices. So, um, so I want to say a little about metta. Metta is a Pali word. Pali is the language that the teachings of the Buddha were written down in a few hundred years after he died. And uh, literally means uh, friendliness. It comes from the the root word maitri, which means friendship. So metta is really a friendliness or a friendship towards life. It's you know, more, more contemporaneously translated as loving kindness, it's a little cumbersome kind of translation, but that also fits the quality. It's a friendly, loving, kind attitude to, to ourselves, to each other, to experience. And when the Buddha talked about loving kindness, as he did in many places, in particular was encapsulated in a teaching on loving kindness, he talked about this quality being very boundless, that we radiate this quality from the heart to, uh, to cherish all living beings. It's a very unconditional quality of love that wants nothing in return, that has no strings attached to it, not like a often usual form of love where we feel somewhat, uh, there's a somewhat of a trade or a negotiation that goes on. You know, we love somebody, but we do so usually in some way or other hope for something back, even if we, even if it's a very uh, grand and magnanimous kind of love, there's usually, in our humanness, there's usually some uh, little way that we want some response or a reflection or appreciation or something 
Um, so this meta is a, is a, is a way of um, touching into a more boundless, unconditional quality that really is, offers itself freely, that really doesn't expect anything back. Sometimes compared to gentle rain, gentle rain that, t- that falls evenly over the land and over all life. The poet, the Sufi poet Hafez, um, puts it this way. He says, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. So what would it be to have a love like that? What sky would it light up in your own being, in your own life? So these teachings, you know, these in the poem is asking us to live to our highest potential. It's saying we have this potential, it's innate within us to have this quality, this capacity, this boundlessness of kindness, of care, this unconditional regard for all of life that we have the ability to extend it just beyond our normal normal domain, which is usually family, friends, some loved ones, you know. And and we have, you know, it's it's saying you have the capacity to extend this to anybody, stranger, person you're having difficulty with or conflict with, people you know, people you don't know. So metta is simply the heart that wishes well. It's this unconditional regard. It's benevolent, it's warm, it's kind. It cherishes life, it cares for life. And it's a generosity. I like to think of metta as a generous heart. The the heart of metta naturally um, shares, naturally has a quality of radiance. So maybe you've been around people that really embody this quality. And they don't just usually stay at home and harbor it all for themselves. It sort of spills out. It's sort of, it's like the sun locked in a house. It just beams out of the windows. You can't keep this quality in. It's a way that we greet the world and our experience and ourselves with affection. Like the look of a, a mother, the, 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 the care that the Buddha says, that it's like the the care that a, a mother has for her only child. It's that quality of, of, you know, she would do anything for that child. And it's also a natural responsiveness. You know, so when we hear of someone who's in distress or uh, someone needs our help, that quality of metta just naturally is there, naturally giving. You know, in England, the, the metaphor would be when someone's in that, in that place, you offer them a cup of tea. You know, just Gina came around this afternoon and shared the news with me, and I invited her in for a cup of tea because <laughs> that's what you do. You know, just that's what the heart wants to do. It also allows a certain quality of connection. You know, we often go about in our lives very um, contracted. We we sort of contract to this prison of our skin of uh, my body being this is my boundary and don't cross it and don't get near it and don't get in my space and keep away and um, that's a way that we need to survive in our lives and yet it's a very, you know, any kind of contraction is suffering. And uh, when we contract it like that, it it mitigates, it, um, it minimizes the potential for connection. A meta is connecting. It is about connection. It makes us feel and sense and actualize the connection that we feel. So the other year when we were teaching here, there was a woman who um, told me this story that she said she was very uh, phobic and fearful about bugs and flies and creepy crawlies. And um, she said whenever whenever she'd have any contact with them on her body or in the house, she would just immediately kill them. And um, this must have been a summer retreat I was teaching, because <laughs> we ain't got any bugs right now. <laughs> Nature's taking care of those. Um, <clears throat> and she said that when the flies were landing on her during the, during the, during the, the meta retreat, 
she realized she couldn't swap them. She, she felt that sense of, oh, this is, a, this is a living being. This is a life form. That's why we, we talk about those precepts in, in the beginning of the retreat, not to harm any living being. It's not just a nice idea. It's a lived reality. We feel it. Oh, yeah, this life is the most precious thing to this fly. How, who am I to take, take it? How, how, how can I be so audacious to take that? And it's not a concept. It's, a, it's just a lived experience. <coughs> Another woman talked about a story of um, being very um, uh, numbed. She's uh, from, grew up in Palestine, <coughs> um, in the West Bank, I think it was. And she talked about um, uh, just being numbed by all the news and the war and the conflict and the violence and felt very disconnected from, from, from that situation in a negative way. And she said after doing a lot of metta, she felt more connected to both sides of the conflict than she ever had. <coughs> so um, this is a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye called Red Brocade, which speaks to this quality of connection. Excuse me. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is and where he's come from and where he's headed. That way he'll have enough strength to answer. Or by then you'll be such good friends that you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts. Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve you. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So I love that poem for that sense of the heart that wants to extend itself without any questions, without any of the usual reservations. It's not, it's not, and it's not blind, it's not stupid. And the metta is also imbued with all kinds of qualities, equanimity, clarity. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's the, there's the more unconditional, spacious, boundless quality of loving-kindness, metta. But it's also very ordinary. It's very simple. It's nothing so esoteric. It's nothing that's not within the realm of your everyday experience. It's a basic kindness, kindness, friendliness, goodwill, care that we have all the time. Not all the time, but, but frequently. You know, it's the, 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 it's the goodwill that... Um, that wishes others to be safe. It's the, it's, the, it's the simple kindnesses that we hold a door open when somebody's going through it. Or we call a friend when they're sick. Or, you know, when our child's in distress. We, it's the natural instinct to just take care, to soothe, to be kind. So, you know, it's the, it's the spirit that really, it's the, it's the lubrication that keeps, you know, society functioning. You know, without a, a basic level of goodwill and kindness, we would be at each other's throats. You know, driving would be absolute nightmare, and uh, society wouldn't function that well. And I heard stories at the inauguration uh, recently. You know, two million people crammed into Washington, and not one police incident, not one incident of of any aggravation. There was just incredible spirit of goodwill and kindness. So um, here's another poem that I want to read. This is from Billy Connons, and um, it speaks to the simplicity, the ordinariness of this quality of love. It's called Aimless Love. This morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later that day with a mouse. The cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, 
without suspicion or silent on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door. The love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white sheet, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida, no waiting or huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still, breast, still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So it's like that. You know, we can fall in love with this, with the soap. <laughs> so soluble. <laughs> Such a great line. So it's that simple. But as you can see, it requires a certain amount of attention. Mostly we'd be washing the soap and we wouldn't even notice we're washing our hands because we're thinking about, you know, watching TV or the next thing or dinner or bank balance or lack of one. I also want to, um, to remind us that this quality is very um, innate. It's very instinctual. That it's, it's something that we practice and cultivate, as Sharon was speaking about last night. But it's also something that's really, it's already within you. We're just bringing it forth. We're, allow, we're creating conditions for it to allow it to shine and also to look at what gets in the way of that. There's a lovely story. It's actually a, a, a teaching story from Alan Wallace, Tibetan teacher, who says, imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries <coughs> and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you are ready to shout, you idiot, <clears throat> what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you catch your breath to speak, you see that the, the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice, and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you? Our situations like this, when we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness and ignorance, we can open the door of wisdom and compassion and love. So it's important for us to trust in that capacity, to trust in that innateness, that it's within us. You just take a moment to reflect on times that that's happened for you. Maybe you haven't bumped into somebody who is blind, but where your heart's naturally opened to a loved one, to a child, to yourself, to a situation, to a tragedy in the world, of which there are numerous. For me, the place that most easily elicits that is in nature. I, like many, I have a deep love of the natural world and it, it just kindles that sense of affection. I just came back from, I hate to say because I'm on the East Coast and it's freezing, but I just came back from Hawaii and uh, it was suffering, it was 80 degrees, it really sucked, you know. Was, you would hate it, you would really hate it. No snow. <clears throat> And um, I, I would go to this place where there's, uh, you can go swim with the dolphins. They just hang out in these few coves um, near where I was staying. And so I'd go down and swim with them uh, and um, watching the little baby spinner dolphins, you know, they, they're the ones who jump up and spin around a few times and then bounce back down. And you know, the heart just balloons. Just, it just, you know, dolphins particularly, they're a very powerful uh, mammal. And, um, but many things, I know I've done many retreats here in the winter and seeing all the, the, the little ladybugs, I don't know how they do this, but they all congregate in the little corners of the windows and huddle for warmth for months. You know, in the middle of winter, there's these beautiful ladybirds, hundreds of them, in the, you know, the, the corridor to the annex, and maybe they're still there this year, I don't know, I haven't seen them. But, uh, and the heart just, you know, can't help but be touched. 
You don't go, okay, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. <laughs> no, you don't need to do that. <coughs> you know, the phrases are useful vehicles for loving kindness, but you know, there's also this innate capacity that's there. This is from Mary Oliver. It's called In Praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor. So, she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with what is left, that loving. Which speaks to another point of, you know, reaping what we sow, we reap what we sow, and that we, you know, we, we uh, that which we, we practice, we become, in a way. And so as we develop this quality of heart through our efforts and through nurturing that which is already within us, um, we may become like the grandmother that's putting out newspaper. That's naturally, that's, that becomes what's left, is that tenderness. So another facet of metta is the aspect of metta as an attitude. As an attitude that we have towards ourselves, towards our experience, towards the world, because whatever attitude we meet the world or each other or ourselves with, that leaves a certain impression, leaves it creates a certain consequence in the world. And I'm sure you know, just that, you know, if we meet and look at the world with a certain lens of anger or hostility or reactivity, that's what we'll see. And it creates itself. So the more that we can turn cultivate this attitude of kindness, of care, that's what we'll begin to see in the world. We'll begin to see through that lens, not in a distorted way. There's a story of a, um, someone here who actually was at Spirit Rock, where I teach out on the West Coast, sister center to here. And uh, she told the story of um, having done several meta retreats and she talked about the difficulty of going home because she had this neighbor uh, who was very difficult, very hostile, negative, and was caused a lot of problems for the whole neighborhood. She knew it wasn't just her. And um, so this particular retreat, she decided to send him a lot of loving kindness. Um, not, to, not to change him, but just to see if she could shift her fear and contraction around him. And when she went home, she was walking up the street and she was going, coming up to his house and was a little apprehensive about whether he was going to be there. And of course he was there in the, in the, in standing at the bottom of the yard waiting to, see, waiting to meet her. And so they met and um, you know, she was in this very open place and he did something very unusual. He came up to her and said, you know, I'm just really sorry for being such a difficult, painful, source of aggravation in your life and everybody's life and he broke down and wept and she was like wow this practice really works <laughs> i should keep doing this <laughs> so you never know but what, but the, the point of the story was was how much her heart opened to him you know she could see him more clearly because she wasn't caught in the prison of her reactivity Maybe that's what allowed that opening, who knows? So on a more sort of ordinary day-to-day -day level, and on day-to-day -day level here, it's about how we meet each moment. How do you meet the moment tomorrow morning when you wake up, you hear the alarm bell or the bell, and you're like, oh no, not another day of this. Am <laughs> I still at IMS? <laughs> Or you get to breakfast and it's like, oh, oatmeal, no, I can't do oatmeal, no. <laughs> or your knee starts to hurt, or your back ache comes back, or that old injury in your neck starts to tingle. How do you meet that moment? How do you greet it? What's the attitude? Is it one of 
hostility or contraction or aversion or is, is there a space to have a little openness, a little window of, oh, this is painful, this is suffering, this is, can I meet this with, with a little openness, a little, a little kindness? I don't have to love my knee pain. I mean, if you do, great. But maybe just a little less contraction, a little, you know, a little more softening, a little, oh, yeah. Or when we get worried about money or the economy or a job or realize, oh, in that moment, I am agitated and I'm upset and I'm distressed and I don't have to judge myself. I don't have to beat myself up. I, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering in that moment. I'm distressed. Can I meet, can I hold myself in that moment with some kindness? Oh yeah, it kind of sucks to be in the situation where I'm uncertain about my job and my my financial situation and my family's situation and whether I can keep the house. And yeah, this is a suffering state. Can I can I be kind with that? So as I said, tomorrow Sharon will we'll talk more about you know, the, how we begin the practice. But I want to say a few things just to, uh, to start that. Um, so with the, the loving kindness practice, we uh, traditionally it's taught we start with ourselves. We start with, we, 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 we start in a way, we, we do the practice in whatever way is easiest to support the, the unfolding of loving kindness. So we start with ourselves. And the Buddha said something very beautiful about starting there. He said, I searched the world high and low, and I found no one more deserving uh, of, of loving kindness than myself. That we are as worthy as anybody else in this world to be, to receive and to give ourselves this wish, this unconditional wish for our own welfare, our own happiness, our own well-being. For some of us, this is not the most easy place to start, whether it's because of our conditioning, uh, religious conditioning or otherwise. Um, for some of us, it hasn't been so easy to be kind to ourselves, to wish ourselves well. It's almost you know, considered a bad thing or you know, so it triggers guilt for some people. Oscar Wilde said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. So probably the most reliable love affair you'll ever have. One of my teachers in India, Punjaji, used to say, love, marry the one that will never leave you. Fall in love with the one that will never leave you. Miss Sagadatta Maharaj, Indian teacher, said this, when you know beyond all doubt that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. And when you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. So we start here, we start at home, because it's out of this capacity to really accept unconditionally ourselves, to hold ourselves with that spirit of generosity and kindness. That's really where the source of that abundance to wish, to generate, to offer that outward comes from. And as I said, for some of us, that's not so easy. And um, with, uh, as we'll see throughout this retreat, um, you know, we'll refer to the meta practice as a purification practice, purification in that um, the practice brings up the obstacles, will, 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 make, will make apparent what gets in the way of us having this open heart. Because when we, when we, when we specifically practice wishing well for ourselves and others, we will, we will at some point come up against resistance, come up against the blocks, the numbness, the difficulties, the contractions, the reasons why we, we hold ourselves small, why we've held our heart tight, whether it's the, the, the pain that we've had, the wounding, the fears, the views, the concepts about love, all different things that would, you'll, they'll become apparent. And that's part of the practice. 
to see what gets in the way so we can understand it. When we understand it, we can free it. So that so it allows the heart to be more unshackled. And one of the things that um, I notice the most when I teach these retreats, these meta retreats, is um, these old habits we have of, of being cruel to ourselves with our words, with our concepts, with our ideas, um, the ways that we talk to ourselves, the way that we're critical, self-judging, having possibly high standards. Um, we are our own, often our own worst enemy. And so we'll be looking at that about how to work with that, how to um, not be so under the grip of those negative voices, those negative strains of mind. There's a, um, a comic strip that I like to read just to make light of this pattern that we have. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And I'll read it in case you catch yourself doing it in the next few days and you can chuckle instead of judging yourselves for having them. So the first caption says, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably, unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the, more, in the mirror and notice all the flaws. We live embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> You'll be doing that quite a lot. It's part, of the pr- it's part of the deal. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> and there's a caption that says, she's, there's a little comic where she's, the comment is, you look great. And she says, don't patronize me. And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. <laughs> so we have these. We, you know, we have lots of things that we show up with. That, that, that's, 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 the, that's what we start from. That's what we work with. We start with where we are. I know when I started this practice many, many years ago, 20 years ago or something, um, I had a lot of, of self-judgment and it was very critical and very, very harsh on myself, like many, many people I know. And uh, the meta was, was like the most mm, befuddling thing I had encountered. It was like, why would I want to say these nice things to myself? <laughs> and my heart was very frozen. I could, it, was very, it was like an iceberg. It was um, very shut down to myself. And, and so I did this practice quite religiously for a long time. And over time, the heart thawed and it became easier to have some positive regard for myself. And I saw how powerful this practice can be, how transformational it can be. And um, those years of feeling hard and critical on myself, they, they seem very distant now. They seem very uh, like from another lifetime uh, because of this practice. And it, it's, it's, it can seem very mundane. You know, when we, you know, if you, the practice of saying these phrases, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering, whatever the phrases that we use are, they can seem very ho-hum. But over time, it, because of the power of intention, because of the, the sowing these seeds, these very positive seeds in the mind, they take root over time and can transform very deep negative states of mind. So I think I'll wrap it up um, there. Just to just to reiterate um, the power of the practice, that the practice, Dharma practice, spiritual practice, so much of spiritual practice ultimately is leading to not just understanding, but th- the understanding that allows the heart to open into love, into clarity, into connection, into kindness, into service. And as our heart does that, as our heart opens as that, that connection becomes more tangible and real, um, it, in my experience, becomes the most important thing there is, the most central thing that there is, is how we live this life, how we manifest this heart of kindness. So we, we ask less of 
what can I get out of this? What, what's the world going to do for me? But what can I give? How can I offer? What can I bring? What can my heart extend to the world, to life? So when the Dalai Lama talks about his religion being kindness, that's an expression of that. My religion is kindness, he says. Or as Hafez says, we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. So let's sit together for a minute. Just let the words settle in. Sense your heart. Seeing if you can hold or cultivate an attitude in this moment of kindness to yourself and to your experience, whatever it is, pleasant, plainful, neutral. I'll leave you with the words of Rumi who says, every tree, every growing thing as it grows says this truth. You harvest what you sow with life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. So, thank you for your attention. So we'll have a period of walking and we'll have a sit at nine o'clock. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.